Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Gordon Kerr, a finance and debt market specialist who's advised several European governments on the future of the Eurozone. With the European Central Bank now raising interest rates for the first time in over a decade, there are fears higher borrowing costs could tip the Eurozone into recession, a region which remains of huge importance, of course, to UK trade. Russian threats to cut off gas to Germany and political crisis in Italy has in fact raised concerns the Eurozone could once again experience the kind of turbulence when Greece was almost forced out back in 2011-12. In this wide-ranging interview, seasoned financial markets practitioner and leading authority on the structure of the single currency, Gordon Kerr, explains the tensions at the heart of monetary union and discusses future scenarios. Now, Gordon, you and I have talked about financial issues over the years. You are a debt and capital market specialist. Let's think back to the early 2010s when the Eurozone was in crisis, when there was lots of concern about financial turmoil across monetary union, across the Eurozone, spreading across the world. And then the chairman of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, said he's going to do whatever it takes to stop the Eurozone breaking apart. Why did he have to say that? Well, he had to say that specifically because yields on uh, Italian credit default swaps, which could be expressed as a kind of insurance policy that major investors buy against a default by the sovereign country itself, were touching on 14%, which was regarded as evidence of uh, very, very serious problems and high risk of default. So the market was worried that the Italian government was basically going to go bust and that would have caused problems across the Eurozone. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And specifically, one little detail there is that the oldest bank in Europe, Banca Monte di Pasqua di Siena, founded 1472, had actually survived with a, with a smaller than should have been required government bailout back in 2008-9 by writing default protection on the Italian government itself. And those, those protection instruments were then called by its creditors, Namura, Deutsche, Santander and others. All these huge international huge institutions. Banks. And that led to some serious questions being asked about the level of disclosure back in 2008. Criminal prosecutions in 2015-16 against several banking executives because of the Bank of Monte Paschi bailout. But Draghi's words actually were successful in that the mere threat of unleashing unlimited firepower on the financial markets led to a uh, calming of things down and, uh, and reduction in rates. For people who aren't well-versed in financial issues, which you know is most of the public, to be honest, of course, as, as you know, Gordon, what you're saying is that back in 2010-11, there was concern that the Eurozone would break up. That would, would be a huge political issue. It would really put the kibosh on a lot of the sort of broader European project. It could even undermine the European Union itself. So the then head of the European Central Bank said he would, as you say, unleash unlimited firepower, create lots of money, throw it at financial markets in order to calm them down, in order to convince them that there weren't going to be any sovereign defaults. That's broadly what happened. You and other extremely expert financial practitioners have been writing in recent months and weeks that we could be returning soon to a 2010-2011 style situation with once again the Eurozone 
possibly experiencing severe financial turmoil. Why? Well, I think the situation today is actually much more serious than it was in 2012. I think it was July, August 2012, when Draghi made his famous do whatever it takes speech. He got away without actually doing anything. The mere threat was sufficient. But as is being publicly leaked even this week, the uh, the present uh, chair of the ECB, Christine Lagarde, is so concerned about uh, another Italian kind of uh, blow up in yields that they are about to reveal say, a new anti-fragmentation tool, which we wait to see. But this is really a major problem for the credibility of the European Central Bank because they have to rewrite two completely divergent horses. They have to demonstrate that they're not engaging in outright financing of Eurozone member states. They're merely engaging in monetary policy. But at the same time, everybody expects this instrument to be some simple device whereby gazillions of euros are printed and donated to Italy. And that obviously is going to provoke the ire of the German constitutional courts, other more fiscally prudent nations and so forth. The, the, the Finns, the, the, the Dutch, the Germans, as you say, because those countries are worried that what the European Central Bank's doing could lead ultimately to inflation, to high price rises. And it's revealing, isn't it, that the ECB is now referring to this as an anti-fragmentation tool. They're talking about potential fragmentation of the eurozone, aren't they? This isn't something made up. Yes, and but to be honest, the 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 senior people in the eurozone have always talked about the risk of the eurozone frag- fragmenting for you know, 10, 15, long before even the financial crisis. And and I think the politics behind this is to a certain extent using the fear of something really bad, fragmentation, to try to bring the politics of Europe closer and closer together. But politically, that's going to be a problem because. Macron lost his uh, parliamentary majority fairly recently. And I the think French president, of French, course. Pr- French president, of course. And of course, Germany has blocked a planned 9 billion rescue funding for Ukraine on the, ground, on the grounds that this was going to be joint and several liability, like a, an EU Eurobond with everybody responsible. And that, of course, is not in accordance with the rules of the game as they presently are. Yeah, and it, it's, it's against the founding articles of association of the Eurozone. We should make clear, Gordon, that you're an engineer by background, you're a financial market specialist, uh, you've been a trader, you're a, a specialist financial consultant. You're not coming at this with any particular axe to grind, are you? I mean, indeed, you've worked as a consultant over the years for various European countries, trying to help them, help their governments to navigate these turmoil, turbulent financial markets. What motivates you here to speak out and share your concerns and share your huge experience and expertise with a broader audience. You're very kind. I've been been lucky to be involved in two or three relatively exciting kind of market-changing designs over the course of my sort of 25, 30-year career. And obviously about seven or eight years ago, especially when the Greece crisis unfolded in such a spectacular and embarrassing way for Greece themselves. And you look around at the misery of high unemployment, particularly youth unemployment throughout Europe, the unaffordability of house prices for youth, youth generation everywhere. You'd like to think there is some political will somewhere to start the ball rolling of getting, of getting there on top of this kind of uh, Eurozone and sovereign debt crisis, because it's the continued, in my view, wrong response monetarily and politically that means that this is going to drag on and on and on and on. We've had high house prices across Western Europe, indeed across much of the Western world, not least here in the UK, and we're not in in the Eurozone. Of course, the Bank of England's been 
creating money like Bilio. We've had a huge quantitative easing program ourselves. Why, in your view, is the situation much worse in the Eurozone? Why could the fallout from financial turmoil in the Eurozone be so much more significant, not just for the Eurozone itself, but indeed for the whole of Western Europe, including the UK and in the, and the world? The simple response to that is because in, in the Eurozone, there is no single powerful government. No matter how unhappy we may be with the policies of the incoming next prime minister, the government has the power here in the UK to compel us to use sterling, to force us to pay taxes to them and so forth. Europe is simply an unfinished attempt at federalization started in 1988 by Jacques Delors. I think the euro currency tool itself was put together very hastily, very childishly as a, as a, as a, as a means to try to you know, bind every single member state together. No easy way to get out. Can you imagine if the UK had adopted the euro, all those Brexit discussions that were not on interminably? I'm, I'm not entirely sure that the UK would have managed to extricate itself from that situation. But right now, bringing it up to the present day, I think in, in the eurozone, what we're discussing today is well known and well understood. Most people that I speak to at high levels in central banks in, uh, in eurozone countries concede that the euro is a failed currency. It, it has no particular future. It's lost all respect in terms of any store of value. Nobody inheriting, you know, a million euros from a, from a, 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 a favorite aunt who might have left them a house in Austria would consider leaving it in cash euros. They'll, they'll put it into some other investments. There's clearly a demand for a replacement currency. I'm not saying the euro is going to crash. I'm not saying it's going to collapse or end. Nothing, nothing that I say is related to predictions as to foreign exchange rates and price movements. We've all watched the euro decline in the last year by 20% against the dollar. May come back from that, depending on what, what, what uh, Madame Lagarde does. That has no bearing on what we're discussing. The issue is the usability and reliability of the euro as a currency for the foreseeable future for these countries in Europe. And nobody I speak to considers that that's the way forward. So I think we're going to see the small emergence of, of uh, little groups of people in the so-called optimal currency zones. And I think the basic tactics of the smaller Eurozone countries is just to cling on to Germany's coattails, try and follow whatever they're going to do. I personally don't think it's just a question of creating a, a new piece of paper with Angela Merkel or Olaf Scholz's face on it and calling it the Deutsche Mark. And there was a very, very interesting article by uh, former chief economist of Deutsche Bank, Thomas Meyer, that went viral in Bulgaria last week because Thomas Meyer noting that Bulgaria is the only country with a currency board, which means that they don't have the ability to bail out banks. They don't have the ability to buy all their government debt. Every single Bulgarian lev is backed kind of one for one by the euro, slightly different ratio. And noting that Bulgaria chooses to buy the bonds of Germany, Finland and Holland to bank yeah. it, May is proposing that Germany should consider abandoning the euro and adopting the Bulgarian lev as its currency because that circles it somehow back to the Deutschmark. Bulgaria, of course, being inside the European Union, but not in the single currency. Now, you say these issues are well understood, and they are well understood, in my experience, among extremely financially articulate professionals, people, frankly, like you. They're not only not understood among our political and media class in the UK, they don't even know that these issues exist, in my long experience, uh, being in the media and talking to lots and lots of politicians. You must admit, Gordon, that the concerns you're airing, while they are widely held among market practitioners, among market traders, 
It's almost as if the political and media class, with a very few exceptions, refuses to engage that there are, there's even an issue here. The design of the eurozone, the design of the single currency. If I raise that amongst most people I know in politics and the media, they'll say, oh, you've been talking about that for years, Liam. Put a sock in it. It hasn't collapsed. You said 10 years ago it would collapse and it hasn't. There's a sense of powerless and impotence. I think since 1997, the formal separation of the Bank of England from the, uh, the, uh, the UK government, the impression has been created that there's some special independent skill that central bankers have to look after the currency, set interest rates, and so on and so forth. But really, I think there's, there's a kind of global club of Western central banks. They all tend to meet together and go on conferences. And the, the policies that have been adopted have been very, very similar for a number of years. And they don't show Massive any, monetary expansion, ultra-low interest rates. Ultra-low interest rates. Now leading, in your view... To, to, to inflation. To the inflation. And unfortunately, another issue you have to bring into the discussion here is that size matters. What's most interesting in the last couple of weeks, you may, and many of your viewers may be aware, I'm sure you will, Liam, that Sri Lanka has gone through a governmental collapse entirely caused by the collapse of its currency and banking system. Well, the mistake there was, I think, a year, 18 months ago, I read a piece by Steve Hankey from John Hopkins University in Baltimore, who, by the way, was instrumental in designing the Bulgarian Currency Board back in 97. He pointed out that the governor of the Central Bank of Sri Lanka, of, uh, of Sri Lanka sorry, uh, embraced modern monetary theory. Namely, he announced a year or so ago that it didn't matter how much debt they had because they could simply print their way out of it. Modern monetary theory being the idea, as you say, put forward by a lot of Joe Biden's advisors now, that you can simply print money and use that to buy government debt. What would happen, Gordon, if there was a repeat of the Eurozone crisis that we saw in the early 2010s. How would that impact the UK? Would Britain be on the hook for any bailouts? Entirely a matter of government policy. What's most interesting when you go back to the, the peak of the conflagration in 2008-9, um, we, we, uh, and even subsequent to that, when I think Governor Mark Carney came on board in 2013, there were very, very close and, uh, arrangements entered into, partly disclosed, termed intra-central bank currency swaps. So I think the understanding was that we said to um, Mario Draghi, as it then was, you know, if there's any kind of a, attack or run on the euro, we will exchange as many you know, gazillions of sterling, as you like, at a prefix exchange rate for euros and vice versa. So that's an so implicit this, bailout, isn't implicit it? Bailout. We would be swapping valuable pounds that might be appreciating in value at less valuable euros that might be depreciating in value at a pre-agreed rate. That is a bailout. That would be a bailout. And that, to me, should be a matter of government policy. And I think the relationship between central banks and governments has always been so extremely close and remains throughout the world that we, you know, some attention ought to be focused on this theoretical independence. And do you think we're still on the hook for that if there is a, a Eurozone meltdown and if there have to be bailouts, as indeed there were in the early 2010s? Well, I'm sure legally we are. But now we come to the great jurisprudential question of, what does international law mean? And I think, uh, I think Mr. Putin would be simply in the camp of saying, look, you know, my tanks are more voluminous than yours. I'm, mm. I, I, I'm going to tend to win most dis disputes. And uh, uh, I think this is why the Eurozone has hung together, because, as I say, every single one of the 27 member states, even the ones that don't use the euro, like Hungary and Poland, know how fragile the euro currency is. But they all stay together because it kind of suits things, it suits them for the time being, everything's set up. But right now, the crisis is at the, at, on the cusp of really breaking out in the Eurozone because 
I think it's been fairly well leaked that the ECB is expected to raise interest rates relatively substantially uh, this, this Thursday. If she does that, I think I think Madame Lagarde is going to lose a bit of credibility with many of these eurozone states that depend on the ECB to keep rates ultra low because the whole setup for several years, well, since 2011, rates have been set at zero to negative interest rates in, in, the, in the eurozone. And it's very hard to see how they can recover. Also consider the economics of the European Central Bank itself. I think yields on its bond purchases have risen by about 2% over the course of the last year. Now, with even under the asset purchase program, 3.6 trillion of bonds, then that rising yield... 3.6 thousand billion. 3.6 thousand billion of <laughs> bonds, then then that rise in yields alone means that the mark-to-market value, the value of their assets, has fallen by 750 billion. The European Central Bank is only capitalised to the extent of 100 billion euros. So it's lost seven times its capital base. Question marks have to... You know, my opponents will say, oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, central banks can create money. But then we're back to the Schranker position and uh, modern monetary theory. And I think that the euro being so unstructured politically could be the first to experience some some rise of an alternative usable currency in parallel with the euro. Give them a chance to see if they can turn this around. But I don't think, uh, I think positions are hardening. I don't think Germany's going to put up with just unlimited printing and donation to Italy just because Italy can't, can't form a meaningful government that will agree to any form of strictures. The Italian government collapsed only last week. Mario Draghi, who we've mentioned quite a lot in this interview, of course, who is now Prime Minister the, the, yeah, of Italy, intended his resignation last week. Technocratic Prime Minister. Technocratic Prime Minister. And I think the President, Sergio Mattarella, tried very hard not to accept it. But I mean, we're seeing this happening in a number of countries as the crisis deepens. I should stress you are an engineer. You are um, an almost, with respect, coldly rational person. You don't say things just for the sake of it. That's not your style. So with that proviso... What is the end game here, do you think, Gordon? What, what, give us a range of scenarios. We, we almost saw Greece fall out of the Eurozone back in the early 2010s. Um, of course, a lot of people didn't like the way Greece was treated by Germany and the other very powerful Eurozone countries. A lot of people suffered as Greece was laboring under an exchange rate that was far too high. It couldn't devalue uh, and make its exports more competitive, boost its economy. And of course, some people would say that Italy suffered in the Eurozone too, barely grown over the last 20 or 30 years since the Eurozone was mooted and then finally created in 1999, again, because the exchange rate's been too high. So what is the end game? Will the Eurozone change shape? Will countries leave, not just smaller countries like Greece, but big countries, you know, top 10 global economies like Italy? And if they do leave, Will that lead to turmoil and financial meltdown that could ultimately affect the UK and the rest of the world? Never really considered that any major countries would actually leave the Eurozone. What I think they might do, as we all know, there are a whole bunch of rules that the EU is unable to enforce at the moment in whole other areas of life, such as social policies and uh, migration policies and so forth. I think one or two of the larger countries are now actively talking about forming new currencies. It's no coincidence that Germany has repatriated, I believe, all of its gold from the US, which caused some really? consternation, I believe. So I hear Poland and Hungary, not Eurozone countries, but they've also repatriated gold. I don't think there's any possibility of any of these crypto uh, tokens becoming any meaningful currency. We, I mean, I've written quite a lot about it. I co-authored a paper with Kevin Dowd in 2014. Bitcoin will bite the dust. Not proud to see that 
coming through, but Bitcoin and, and these other cryptos have no conceivable future in, in any kind of monetary space. But the design of a credible currency using, you know, a sensible resource such as gold is perfectly feasible. There are these, um, you can know, you can have a bank account in gold here in the UK with one or two of these companies, Tally Money or, or Bullion Vault or Glint or these sorts of people. We're so, not recommending them. We're not just, recommending we're just, just, they, they we're exist just, we're just as, mentioning them. as fintech businesses. And so, somebody with, a, with, a, with some kind of common sense could design something like that. But the reason why I fear the central banks will struggle without hopefully outside help like us is because there seems to be a widespread failure amongst central banks to appreciate the deep fragility of their banking systems. All that's happened since 2009, 10, 11 is that there have been more moves to invent new calibration devices such as stress tests. You know, you've had people like Andy Haldane when he was chief economist of the Bank of England saying, don't waste your time reading the accounts of any major bank. You can't learn anything from it. Well, it comes to something when senior people are saying things like that and saying, trust us, we've got this crystal ball thing for a stress test. We can look at it. A well, stress test is just sort of desk-based research, isn't research it? It's scenario planning, scenario planning, model building, convincing yourself with endless sucking of pencils that the situation is fine. Yeah. And also the stress tests are heavily biased in favour of property-based loans. You know, you know keep, keep, keeping the housing boom thing kind of going in a way that is, I think, to the detriment of the next generation of society coming through. This, this kind of this kind of bias in favour of failing to recognise the deep, the deep problems, the, the fact that the insolvency should have been washed out of the system far more effectively in the latter half of the Northeast decade is causing problems. I think in, in some, Gordon, a lot of you know, regular viewers and listeners who follow the news, they're hearing more and more that deeply knowledgeable people like you are concerned about financial markets at the moment. Financial markets look bloated. Of course, we've had a lot of financial markets falling quite heavily since the start of this year. Um, but some people still co- are still concerned that stock markets, bond markets, they're still really overvalued because they've been pumped up. They're bloated by lots of printed money yeah. over the last 10 years or so, you know, basically since the 2008-9 financial crisis. Do you think there's anything in that? Do you think we're due or heading for a period of financial turbulence. I ask that not to be alarmist, but because it's actually quite rare that somebody of your background does talk to a mainstream journalist like me. Very, very kind. But it's very difficult to see any kind of currency reform, any kind of fixing of this 15-year-old now banking crisis could happen without some kind of fall in the deeply highest, most leveraged kind of assets, such as property-based lending and so forth. I mean, Coming from a basic Austrian economics background, most Austrian economists don't regard there as being any intrinsic value in property at all. There's no reflection of human labour or value creation and so forth. So I would have thought that's the case. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. It depends where you are, how old you are, how worth you are right now. You know, I've been puzzled over the years throughout my career, you know, you know, checking the hotel in New York and any any dip in the Standard & Poor's stock market index that day is regarded as a complete disaster to get you Kleenex is out, but surely it's very, very good for young people, people that are starting on the employment ladder mm. for stocks and shares to come down in value a little bit. Also, look, at, I've forgotten what the uh, what the price earnings multiple is in the UK market. Very, very high at the moment. Mm. I spend a lot of time in my Sofia office in Bulgaria. The price earnings multiple there is three or four times. You know, so mm. I could see some kind of equivalence. And you know, to, to that extent, there's also been a bit of an imbalance within the EU itself in terms of values being far, far higher in France and the Western 
countries than on the on the eastern part of the EU, which is why 12 of them have formed their own kind of three seas alliance now to try to lobby more effectively. And if stock markets are heavily overvalued, you referred to a price earnings ratio. You know, you've got Western markets, they're valued at 20 or 30 times annual earnings of all the companies um, that are listed on the stock market. And of course, in some markets, it's much lower, like three or four times in some emerging markets. And you mentioned Bulgaria. If valuations are high, they're more likely to come down, everything else being equal. I should ask you just finally, Gordon, and this is outside your general expertise, but you do have you know, a lot of financial experience. What do you think the impact of all this could be on, say, house prices in the UK, which is the asset that most people watching this programme and listening to this interview on the radio and elsewhere will know most about? Do you think house prices are massively bloated? And if they are going to correct, when could that happen? Well, I do think house prices have ceased to adopt any kind of relationship to to conventional multiples. It's not of... Ten times average earnings now, the average home across the UK. When I bought my first house in the late 90s, it was four times average earnings. That is the historic long-term multiple. And I think people tend to forget the fact that an awful lot of people, my generation, a little bit older than you live, I think, um, made money twice on their house. A, as the capital value went up, and B, as their mortgage payment went down. The sad thing is that that correction could happen the other way around. So I'd be cautious as a young person about taking on that half a million pound mortgage to buy a button bend in uh, some small part of London and, and, and thinking that, that, that the story you always hear is that rent is dead money. Well, hang on, at least you don't have that price downside. You know, if there's a substantial correction, I'm afraid young people are going to get whacked again because there'll be mass bankruptcies. We'll have to disagree on that. In my view, I think the fundamental shortage of homes and ongoing demand means that house prices will stay pretty firm. So, but, fine, but obviously, neither of us know. We're all just putting our fingers in the wind, aren't we? And, and trying to use our minds to work out what's going to happen. So final question, Gordon, where do you think the Eurozone will be in 10 years? Do you think it will have fewer members than now? Of course, countries are lining up to try to apply to join the Eurozone. You've got, uh, I hear, uh, accession agreements. The discussion started with Albania and Macedonia this week. We know Ukraine's trying to get get there. We know Croatia and Bulgaria are halfway through the joining process. I think there's a political element to this, which will probably find a way to survive. Um, there's a general desire, certainly in Eastern Europe, everywhere I meet, where there's been all kinds of wild East stories. People like the idea of being members of the Eurozone for the simple reason that having that supervisory layer will ensure that, uh, shall we say, corruption levels at a local government level are decelerated from where they might be without some kind of super supernational supervision. So I think the Eurozone might well carry on, but I don't think the Euro will be a major global currency. Very interesting. Gordon Kerr, thanks a lot for appearing Thank on you. Money Talks. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel. (laughs) 